My name is Katherine Grabenstein. I'm a third year PhD student uh, at CU Boulder and I work on the Boulder Chickadee study and have been uh, putting up tons of boxes and building boxes and putting logos on them that you that you saw. Yeah, uh, my name is Scott Taylor. I'm an assistant professor at CU Boulder um, and I'm the PI of the lab that is running the Chickadee Boulder study. So Catherine's the first graduate student to work on what we hope is a really long-term elevational study from basically campus to tree line. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about what the Boulder Chickadee study is, um, because I saw a box or two around campus and I thought, oh, bird boxes for chickadees <laughs> specifically, but where did the idea come from? Yeah, so the idea really came from Catherine and I. Uh, we both started at CU Boulder three years ago. So I started here, this is my first professor position, and Catherine was my first PhD student. And so in talking about you know what I've previously worked on, which is chickadees in Eastern North America, and what we could work on locally in terms of understanding how um, environmental change and urbanization is changing the way species interact, chickadees were kind of a, a no-brainer to work on. Um, they're really common within Boulder and outside of Boulder. There's two species here, mountain and black-capped chickadees, and so we're really interested in trying to understand how they interact. And I can let Catherine talk about why we use boxes. Yeah, so we put up the boxes because they're cavity nesters, so black-capped chickadees make their own cavities, and then mountain chickadees use basically cavities that have been built by other bird species. And so we build these boxes that are kind of these pseudo cavities that we can pop open the lid on, which is not the case for cavities in the wild <laughs> that are in hollow trees. Um, and then we limit access by basically changing the size of that hole. So the hole is small enough that it only allows chickadees and it excludes other larger birds. So that's kind of how we get around, hopefully only getting chickadees. There are other birds that will nest in there, but for the most part, <laughs> chickadees are kind of our primary target. And like you said, chickadees are very common. Why <coughs> are you interested in studying them, and why specifically here? Yeah, so part of the reason we're interested in studying chickadees is because they are so common. So our lab is really <coughs> excuse me, interested in understanding how different species, closely related species, interact and how those interactions are changing with respect to large-scale changes like climate change or urbanization, which is increasing pretty exponentially. Um, so because chickadees do well in both rural and urban environments, they make an interesting case study to ask, you know, how do they interact in regions we haven't disturbed versus regions we are disturbing, like the city of Boulder um, and other places where we've built houses, planted trees that aren't usually here and so on. Um, our previous work on chickadees in eastern North America has found that this region of interaction between them is really heavily influenced by minimum winter temperatures. So we know that environmental variables drive and can change the way these birds are interacting. And there's been less done on mountain and black-capped chickadees. So we're kind of in Boulder in this amazing environmental transition from the plains to the mountains. But then within Boulder, we're in a city and the whole city is surrounded by green space. So it's this really amazing place for natural experiments to try and understand, you know, how species interact in the wild. And so what did you find in previous research and um, are you finding any preliminary results um, from the Boulder chickadee study? So <coughs> previous work that I've done on two, on um, black-capped chickadees, but then Carolina chickadees in eastern North America, um, in collaboration with people at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and Villanova University, found that the hybrid zone or the region where these two species interact is moving pretty rapidly north 
in uh, response to climate change, so in, res in response to minimum winter temperatures. And at the same time, colleagues of ours in, in Canada have found that black-capped and mountain chickadees, so a different pair of species, they tend to hybridize in areas that are disturbed. So clear-cut areas that are regrowing is where you see these pulses of hybridization. Um, so we don't have any data yet here, <laughs> which is part of the reason we're putting up the boxes. But, um, but yeah, if you want to talk about the plan for that. Yeah, so we have uh, boxes on campus, and the hope is to basically incorporate those into uh, courses that Scott teaches, uh, like ornithology and population genetics. And then we also have boxes within the city of Boulder, and then we kind of step up through Boulder Canyon. So we have boxes in an intermediate site on Sugarloaf, and then also boxes at the Mountain Research Station, and that goes basically up to 11,000 feet. Wow. Yeah, so we, we span a pretty large, we go from, I 5,300 to just over 11,000 is where we have boxes ranging. And along that elevational transect, it, you get a transition from mostly black-capped chickadees in Boulder, although you can see mountain chickadees in Boulder and they breed here, uh, all the way up to, you know, when you're at, at or above 11,000 feet as the trees drop out, you really only have mountain chickadees mm -hmm. up there. So we're interested in this natural variation, elevational variation, and the distribution of chickadees and how it changes throughout the annual cycle and how it changes year by year. Because you know, as the mountains get drier and hotter, we might predict mountain chickadees to come, you know, spread down because they seem to be more tolerant of dry habitat. But you know, the the point of these initial 350 boxes is to start out the project, just to understand, you know, what is there now, and then throughout the course of my time at Sea Boulder, which I hope is lengthy, you know, get a picture of all kinds of aspects of how these birds are interacting. Um, how that varies across elevation, whether it varies from, you know, places like campus, which are really busy and have a lot of non-native tree species, to places that are more natural. And so this is the first transect, and I would imagine eventually there'll be others that go from natural habitat up into natural habitat, so we can compare those to our boulder transect, but that's kind of more years down the line. And what you're saying there's transect, which is... Yeah, so transect is just the word we use in science to describe um, a sampling slice. region or a slice. <laughs> or, you know, if you sample a transect in a forest, you kind of walk a straight line and you sample along that transect. So when we use that term, we mean along this elevational gradient from Boulder to the Mountain Research Station, we have boxes in specific areas, not in a perfect line, but it's the, the sampling distribution or region that we go to. And so we refer to that as this initial elevational transect. And I also want to go back to something you were mentioning earlier of hybridization mm -hmm. of the um, mountain chickadees and the black-capped chickadees. What does that mean? Is that a way of their interaction, or uh, how does that work? Yeah, so hybridization is this thing that I think a lot of us are maybe familiar with if you've seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite, because the liger is this kind of fantastical <laughs> beast that is a cross between a tiger and a lion. So in the wild, lions and tigers don't run into one another. They can't produce offspring with one another, that are offspring that are then admixed, their genomes are mixed up. Um, but in nature, hybridization actually happens pretty often. So there, you know, there's even evidence that hybridization happened throughout the evolutionary history of elephants, which we didn't even expect, or various um, other groups like apes. And so we study hybridization between birds, and about 10% of all bird species will hybridize. So different things we consider different species, like black-capped and mountain chickadees, sometimes when they're interacting, they'll decide 
to breed with one another and produce offspring that have traits of both black cat chickadees and mountain chickadees. And those mixed up offspring um, often don't do well, so we don't think hybrids survive that long. But there are other cases where hybrids survive just fine in, in different fish species. If you think locally, um, rainbow trout were introduced for fishing here, and they hybridize really readily with cutthroat trout. And so they're actually a conservation concern because the hybrids produced by those two trout species are fertile and can produce their own offspring, and that can be a conservation challenge. Um, so we study hybridization because we're interested in, you know, species barriers or what keeps, you know, a blue jay and a stellar's jay or whatever species you're familiar with, which I recognize maybe there aren't a lot of birders listening, but um, what keeps species separate? So we're really interested in, you know, what are the differences at the level of the genome in a black cap chickadee versus a mountain chickadee that keep those two species different, even though sometimes they do produce offspring together. Um, so that's what we, we're talking about when we mean hybridization. And we, we measure it by sequencing uh, the whole genome of every bird that we catch, which is you know, something we've only really been able to do in the past five years. It's kind of like Darwin's finches, but in Boulder. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it, it really is, you know, um, Darwin's finches do hybridize quite extensively, and people are using the same tools we're using here to study boulders, chickadees, uh, to study various questions about the evolution and, and ecology of Darwin's finches, yeah. So what is the goal of this study? I mean, do you have a hypothesis of what's happening, or is it more exploratory? What's going on here? Do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of both. So this first year is definitely exploratory, but the plans in the future is to actually do experimental manipulation. So we need to basically break things apart in order to figure out how they work. And our running hypothesis is that something about cities is changing these interactions between the black-capped and the mountain chickadees. I think it's feeders. I think people put up feeders that bring in both species and they compete at these feeders. And black-capped chickadees are more dominant, more aggressive at the feeder than mountain chickadees. And females of both species like more dominant males. And so mountain females then key in on those dominance interactions and then mate on the side with male black-capped chickadees. So I think it's the feeders that people put up in their yards that bring these species into really close contact and have them interact. And that's kind of the running hypothesis. Yeah, um, and we think that it happens. So we think there's some aspect of witnessing these interactions that because of resource changes we make, whether it's feeders or we plant trees mm -hmm. like silver maple that are really good breeding resources for black-capped chickadees that are bringing them into closer interaction because they typically are elevationally separated. Usually mountain chickadees are higher up than black-caps. Um, but in, in the city of Boulder and other places, kind of in environmental transitional areas, uh, you know, like Albuquerque, New Mexico, or parts of Canada where we find both species, um, they also probably exist at um, lower densities. So they could be seeking out mating events with the other species because there aren't as many of their species around. So that often leads to hybridization in nature, and it's like the best of a bad situation kind of scenario. But we do think the resource distribution changes that humans are causing in these, in these areas are probably driving the pattern, but we really want to you know, just start out by documenting what's going on. So is there already hybridization here? Is there not? And we can figure that out by sequencing the genomes of all the birds we catch in Boulder, which we're starting to do now in the lab. And then going forward, we can see how that changes uh, through time and also using experimental manipulations up at the Mountain Research Station to see 
if we can do anything that causes them to hybridize or not. And if if we can, then we'll really understand like what is that thing or that set of conditions that maintains black cat chickadees and mountain chickadees as being different. And is there a certain idea that it's good or bad to be hybridizing, or is it maybe more neutral depending on the context? It's really context dependent. So the kind of going thought about hybridization in evolutionary biology has been for a long time different between people who study plants versus people who study vertebrates. So plant biologists have recognized for a long time that hybridization happens in nature. It's actually probably played a role in the evolutionary history of maybe 35 to 40 percent of all angiosperms. So all flowering plants are some kind of hybrid. Um, whereas zoologists, people who study you know vertebrates typically, have thought of hybridization as being negative because the ones we're familiar with, like mules, are sterile. They can't produce their own offspring. Ligers and tigons and all these other ones, they don't produce offspring that can do anything. But we're, we're able now to use genomic tools, so sequencing of genomes, to understand that hybridization has actually played probably an important role in the evolutionary history of a lot of vertebrates, um, including humans, which is pretty, really cool recent research that shows, you know, two to three percent of um, certain populations of humans are derived from Neanderthal, like Homo neanderthalensis, which is pretty incredible. So we're recognizing that hybridization can have played a role in the evolutionary history of a lot of things. And we don't really know, you know, whether it's been important for chickadees or not, but that's what we want to try and understand. So our hybrid chickadees, do they do so poorly that they don't themselves have offspring? Because if they don't, then they're evolutionary dead ends. They're not going to produce anything. They're not going to mix up the genomes anymore. But if they survive and go on to reproduce with one of the parent species, so a hybrid breeding with a black captor or a mountain, that potentially allows for genes to move between the species through this thing we call, the process we call introgression. So um, if hybrids are produced and they can produce their own offspring and that happens for 500 or 1,000 or a million generations, you can have movement of parts of a genome from one species to another. And sometimes those regions are really adaptively important. And I think the coolest example is with mice. So there's hybridization between house mice and they're close but not really close relative, this kind of mouse called Mus spritus. And that species has warfarin resistance. It has a single gene that makes it resistant to warfarin, which is a common thing we use to kill mice. And via hybridization, that one part of the genome has moved into certain populations, certain other populations of mice that are not resistant to warfarin and allowed them to be resistant. And so there you can see how integration can be really important evolutionarily because then you survive. And so we don't know what's going on with chickadees, but that's one thing we're really interested in. And you know, a lot of people who study rapid change are really interested in whether hybridization can provide, you know, parts of genomes that have already been kind of evolutionarily vetted because selection has acted on them for years and then via integration provide like adaptive potential. And that's something that a lot of people are really interested in right now, um, particularly you know, in terms of climate adaptation. Right, and Boulder is such a space where um, kind of the population, the community does interact frequently uh, with the wildlife. And so you mentioned it might be bird feeders, it might be something else. Um, how do you think uh, Boulder in general is kind of a, 
um, maybe a case study for uh, the, the world in this sense? Um, or what would you maybe say to someone who's interested in um, maintaining a healthy relationship with their wildlife in Boulder? That's a really good question. Um, do you have ideas? Yeah, go for it. Okay. <laughs> I think like, so I don't think we're, we're not saying necessarily that fe- like feeding birds has been shown to not really have any negative effects on them and some positive ones, different ones more than others. We really don't know if it's necessarily bird feeders um, or the trees we're planting or just the way we're changing the environment, you know, in terms of having more cavities because there are whatever, different kinds of trees. Um, I think we're hoping that we know the community of Boulder is really engaged in environmental everything, really. You know, we have access to open space. We love the mountains. um, And we're hoping through this study just to raise awareness about things going on in people's backyards. You know, Boulder's a really interesting case study because of where it is environmentally, you know, this transition from plains to mountains, being surrounded by open space, and still having a lot of chickadee habitat. You know, I think the chickadee population in this town is higher than anywhere I've ever lived. And so we're hoping that that can help people engage on these interesting questions about evolutionary biology and natural history of the organisms we live with, and maybe conservation. But we don't really know enough about what causes them to hybridize to have a strong kind of opinion in that sense. Um, From a global perspective, there aren't a lot of places where you could ask this kind of question, where you have this environmental and um, urban-rural transition along with two different species that are closely related enough to interact to the point where they'll hybridize. So we really do think that in that sense, Boulder is an amazing natural laboratory to just understand these broader questions about evolutionary biology you know, in people's backyards. And um, we're really excited about engaging the public because a lot of the boxes that we put up in Boulder will be in people's backyards. Um, Almost all of them are on private land, actually. Yeah, even up on Sugarloaf, yeah. Yep, exactly. So the only ones that are on not private land are the ones that are on CU's property, so the Mountain Research Station and campus, but everything else is on private land. So Why is that? (laughs) It's easier for for permitting. (laughs) Um, So hoops that we have to jump through, but... Uh, I think for us it was also really important to, like Scott mentioned, bring the boxes into people's backyards. So a lot of them are on just people's you know, backyards, the homes in Boulder. We have a couple on uh, farms in Boulder, so um, Long's Gardens will have some. And there's a couple kind of larger pieces of property, but for the most part it's really just people that we've connected through through university and then passed us on to their neighbors and their neighbors and this expanding network of folks who are in, you know, keen to be a part of the study and like birds or are interested in their backyard or support science. Um, so there's a variety of people who are interested for many different reasons. Yeah, one of the thing that, things that's really important to both of us is engaging the public. We recognize that, you know, we live in a community of relatively aware people with it, when it comes to scientific literacy and things like that. Um, but even here, you know, science can be really esoteric and the questions we're asking aren't super straightforward, but it, it's easy, it's really easy to connect with someone and have a discussion about, you know, broader evolutionary biology things we're interested in as we're putting a nest box up in their backyard, or as we're checking the nest for for chicks, or, you know, as we're putting bands on their legs and we can talk to members of our community about why the work we're doing is important and interesting, and then the message spreads really easily. I think, you know, both of us have Im- been involved in citizen science initiatives. Um, and the value of those is really hard to overstate because 
scientists don't do a good enough job at engaging the public and trying their best to talk about what they're doing and why it's important and why it's not just some you know, random thing they thought to study, you know, that it's relevant more broadly. And I think the great thing about chickadees is if I start a conversation with someone about hybridization or climate change or evolution, it's not as easy as asking them if they've ever seen a chickadee. And broadly in North America, the answer to that question is yes. Maybe they've even had one eat out of their hand, you know, take seeds out of their hand in the winter or something like that. And so it creates this connection that we really love because the people in Boulder that have contacted us know what we're talking about. They know these little black and gray birds. They are familiar with their song. They want to have them in their backyards. And it makes talking about science and um, the things related to our really easy and fun. So that's part of why we actually work on chickadees. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. Oh, thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us, yeah.